This episode is brought to you by Interactive Brokers. Did you know that Interactive Brokers charges margin loan rates from 5.58% to 6.58%? Their clients can also earn extra income by lending their fully paid shares of stock. Join Interactive Brokers clients from over 200 countries and territories to invest in stocks, options, futures, funds, bonds, and all on a global basis. Minimize your cost to maximize your returns. Rates, of course, are subject to change. Learn more at ibkr.com slash compare. The Disciplined Investor is all about you, your money, and the markets. Sit back and get ready for this edition of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. This episode of The Disciplined Investor is sponsored by Horowitz & Company. If you're looking for a portfolio manager, look no further. Horowitz & Company, from seed through harvest, cultivating financial success. OPEC cuts production. Well, at least one country does. Odds still favor a Fed skip, a new word on the street. A look at ROE and market performance during recessions. All this and much more on episode number 820 of the Disciplined Investor Podcast. Welcome to the Disciplined Investor Podcast. I am so happy that you're here. Hopefully you have some summer plans. You have summer plans? What are you doing this summer? I got to tell you, it's been busy on this side. <laughs> I've been watching some things that are going on around the world as well. And it doesn't look like anybody is staying home, retracting, hanging out, saving. No, they're all in. They are just out ready to go do their thing. It's like, all right, enough. We had enough. We've done it. We've been safe. We masked up. We vaccined up. We stayed home. We social distanced. All the stuff that we haven't heard those words in a while, right? And we're going out because I got to tell you something. There's been some interesting things that I've seen in my recent travels. We'll talk about that in a bit. Before we do that, I want to mention I'm Andrew Horowitz, and you can catch me here every week on the Disciplined Investor Podcast. I'm the host of this. I'm also the president and founder of Horowitz & Company, which is an investment management firm. We manage your money. Very simple. If you don't want to do it, you want somebody professionally to do it, we manage your money. I'm also the co-host of DH Unplugged, where each and every Tuesday I get together with John C. Dvorak, and we talk about, as I like to say, the lighter side of finance. We find some of the really interesting things that are going on in the world of finance and try to take it apart, put it back together, make it understandable, usable, and uh, I guess a bit entertaining at the same time. At least we try. Play lots of games, do some cool things. Tuesdays, either that or just look up DH Unplugged uh, in your favorite podcast app. So again, I said plenty of exciting things to discuss. I, I touched on, I think, last week, my recent trip to Europe. I went over for a wedding in the UK in London, and I decided with my wife, well, you know what, let's spend some time in Ireland. Never been there before. I thought it would be a really nice place to go and spend some time learning about the culture and the land and the Emerald Isle and all about what they have to do there. And it was fantastic. It really was a wonderful place to go. Next time I'm bringing some golf sticks with me, 
because that is the place that will probably frustrate the hell out of me with the undulations and the hills and the dales. But it looks like an amazing place to play golf, obviously. Duh. But I got to tell you, people were out. They were traveling. They were spending money. Big time. Now, this is it's obviously anecdotal, right? It, it's all about what I saw from my perspective, from my line of sight. But things were popping. And it's summertime, yeah. So you'd expect some of that. Airports being a little more crowded than usual, more people on vacations. We were still in the latter part of May. We really weren't in the heart of summer when I went. I mean, we're talking about when school is out, when things are on vacation, you know, you get more and more people that are taking those vacations latter part of June into July and August. And it is amazing, especially in Europe, what's going on. Traveling is a thing again. Been a lot of articles talking about how that a lot of people have decided that they have, for whatever reason, they decided Europe's the place to be once again. It could be because of the currency, maybe. Wasn't that cheap, but it was okay from a U.S. dollar perspective. Maybe it was because they stayed away for so long. It's time they said, you know what? I want to go back. I want to see Europe again. And I got to tell you something. Stores were jammed. Bags were full, especially in London. Amazing what was going on there. I looked around. I, I was astonished. The hotels were packed. The streets were bustling, which they are often. It's a busy city. There's no question about that. But the crowds were thick everywhere. I'm not just talking about in the business district. I'm talking everywhere that I went around London. It was pretty, pretty busy. The restaurants were packed early, late. No matter when you went to the restaurant, it was it was busy, very busy. So I don't know, maybe no recession there, or at least no service-based recession there. And in, in the United States, we're seeing a bit of a similar situation, I would say. Services are holding up from an economic standpoint. Maybe not in your town, in, in your city, you're seeing the same thing. You may be seeing that there's more recessionary pressures in some of the manufacturing-based areas, not like Florida, which is a travel-based, right? This is this our our state here, most of the state, not all of it, but most of the state is is the number one overall uh, means to 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 earn for the state is related to services, as opposed to some areas around the country that are more manufacturing, production, uh, and based on different types of business, which would be, again, the manufacturing side, which is in essentially a recession. So services are holding up well here, and manufacturing is seeing a good deal of decay at the same time. We've, we've talked about this, right? I called it a few times the insta economy, this idea that if, you're going somewhere and you're eating somewhere and you want to take a picture of yourself doing it. Those are the things that are doing well right now, aside from technology. But when we look at, for example, the other side of what you wouldn't take a picture of, like your toothbrush or maybe a couch, those are things that are not doing as well. Manufacturing things that are being made, just the, 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 the more touchable, the more, uh, I would say, the, the, the use items. Not doing as well. And that is not only 
here in the U.S. We're also seeing this around the world, like I mentioned in Europe, but also what we're seeing in places like China. China's services is doing much better. Their manufacturing is caving in, in a bit. Seeing some um, interesting numbers that are recurring again with regard to the real estate and manufacturing, what's going on in China. Now China seems hell-bent on stimulating. So that's a bit different than we're seeing in other parts of the world. In fact, probably, I would say, thinking just for a moment here, the only places really that are doing anything about stimulating and continuing on at the level that they were is China, I would say, to a degree, and Japan. So those two countries are the outliers. The rest of the world is doing what they can to try to curtail inflation and to force a slowdown of the economies around the world. So that's pretty interesting what's happening there. And, and that exclusion of those two countries is showing up with like a 13-year high on the Nikkei. Now, there are some countries in Europe that are also hitting all-time highs, like the DAX, which has in the past been a manufacturing hub. We've always thought of Germany as a core manufacturing country as opposed to a travel destination. Not that it's a bad travel destination, but it's, you know, we think about it from an economic standpoint, what the economy is all about, what is made up of. It was always about manufacturing, cars, as a good example. With the fact that we are seeing all of the tightening around the world and some of the things that are going on right now post the debt ceiling, post the debt ceiling agreement, the fact that liquidity is going to be drained out of the markets in the U.S. due to the idea, and this is down a notion, this is pretty much well written and, and, and understood out there. Liquidity is going to be drained from the markets because there is such a need to issue an extraordinary, almost I would say, historic amount of debt over the next several weeks to pay for the excess amount of money that's required right now to pay for the bills that are outstanding. One of the reasons probably that this new word in the vocabulary of Fed speak has come into prominence and has been bantered around to a point where they're trying to ingrain it, teach it, nudge you, push you into believing this is what it's going to be. And what is that? The word is skip. You started hearing about this, skip. That the Fed is going to skip a meeting. The Fed may want to take a pass at the next meeting, don't increase rates, then reassess based on economic conditions and data points. So, okay, that's pretty interesting. Maybe many still think that the Fed, while pushing as hard as they have over the last year, has not done enough. I, I, I'm in that camp. I don't see anything really substantially slowing down, aside from manufacturing. But that employment report, which we'll get to, that employment report last week was dramatic. And the fact is that it seems to me that that employment report was such that while we saw a 3.7% unemployment rate, which was an increase from 3.4%, but about 350,000 new jobs added, wage growth still holding up pretty well, and all the other components underneath it showing that there really is not a lot of slack in the economy, that we're really not seeing a substantial amount of 
businesses say, you know what, we're really worried about the future and we better slow down. That we're really concerned about a, a recession coming around the corner and therefore we need to be laying off a lot of people, cutting our expenses. That's not what we're seeing. And that being the case, the Fed's job is just not done. No, the Fed does not need to destroy the jobs market, does not need to burn down every house and stop all sorts of buying and building and all that. No, but they need to slow down the economy in order to slow down inflation, which is their number one goal. So they have what? Price stability and full employment, right? There's two major issues. So what's happening right now with this idea of a skip is that they can gain a little bit of time to assess, which is probably a reasonable, uh, reasonably good idea. And what they have is cover. They have cover because the unemployment rate went to 3.7%, even though everything else about that report was not so, so meaningful in terms of or allowing them to have cover in order to skip. Probably if it wasn't for that, it was all for a raise. Right now, there's about a 25, 26% chance of next week having a another uh, rate hikes, about 25 basis points. So it's not that big of a deal. It switched around pretty dramatically after not only the last jobs report last Friday, but also what? When the word skip came into the functional vocabulary of Fed speak. I think it's really an interesting scenario that's going on right now. It's something we need to pay attention to as stocks are starting to stretch valuation and the Fed is looking at all this and saying, wait, how much have we done? Why isn't it slowing down? We know the transmission of Fed policy takes a long time to work its way in and out of the economy. But how much longer is it going to take till things really start slowing down to a point that we could say we won not only on slowing down inflation, but bringing down prices to a point that's reasonable. And all of this goes into that equation. It's not just jobs. It's also the spending. It's not just the inflation rate on its own. It's what's going on with corporate profitability. It's going on with what's happening with, with, with the housing. All these things have to be combined to assess where the Fed wants to be and where they're going to be. Now, let me uh, switch up. I want to talk about a couple of different things. Uh, one, I want to talk about uh, a question that's been asked, two different things, two questions that were asked. But one is, is which I'll get to right now, about ROE, or return on equity, and uh, margins. And that's something that I talk about a lot when we're talking with clients, specifically for the Disciplined Investor Managed Growth Strategy. And we recently rebalanced a portfolio. And there's some, I, I thought some interesting findings in that. And then the other thing is I want to talk about a question that has come up many times about this idea about, well, how do stocks and how do markets traditionally behave in recessions? Well, that's an interesting discussion. So that's something I want to get into as well. But first, let's start with the, the idea of, well, we re just re recently rebalanced our Discipline Investor Managed Growth Strategy portfolio. This is a strategy that we have that is does some hedging, it does some shorts, it does core equity positionings, it does trading. The reason I'm bringing this up is because I think out of the rebalance, there were some very interesting things that happened. 
and also what happens in the rebounds. One of the things we're looking for is probably about a dozen different components fundamentally that a stock has to meet in order to get into the portfolio. They have to go through this whole filtering and screening and scoring process in order to get there. So therefore, they may be in there for longer than three months or they may be cut after three months. But when we're we're reading the rebalance process for a portfolio on a quarterly basis, we do this. Uh, two of the filters that we use to find stocks that meet our criteria are ROE and margins. And I bring these up because these, these two things in particular are important uh, and, and they hold a special meaning, I think, overall. And there are several factors, as I mentioned, that we screen for when we're looking for stocks in the portfolio. And these two in particular, when combined, can be very powerful and an indication about a company's financial performance ability, not performance of the stock. I didn't say that. I said about the company's financial performance. The two things are ROE, return on equity, and expanding margins when we put those together. Because a high ROE, a high return on equity, what that says to me is that the company's ability and the management, the management most importantly, has the ability to generate strong returns on the shareholder's equity, which also suggests that the company is effectively utilizing its assets and capital to generate profits, which obviously is something we want to see, right, as shareholders. That's a very positive signal for investors. Now, when we combine that issue of a high ROE, and what is high ROE? It all depends on the sector, depends on a few things. But, you know, you get over the 17 number on ROE, we start thinking, well, that's looking pretty good for that particular stock. And again, depending on what it looks like, not only for that stock, but also for a peer comparison of that stock to its sector peers. But when we combine that and add to that expanding margins, that indicates that a company is improving its profitability over time, right? When we have expanding margins, not contracting margins, when we see that margins, which is the, really, what is margin? What is the net? It's the net after all expenses, right? The percentage of, 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 uh, essentially a profit that you have after your expenses are removed or when you take a look at it, right? So we say, well, how much are they making? Well, there's an 80%. 80%? Oh my God, what is that? Well, they keep 80% of the money they get from revenues because only 20% is expense. Well, that's pretty good. I'll take that, right? Well, we don't know many companies with 80%, but the point is we look for companies with expanding, with growing margins, at least stable margins. And that means that the company is either increasing its revenues on reducing its costs, right? Or results in higher profit either way. And this can be achieved through all sorts of ways. Improving operational efficiency or controlling costs, cutting your costs, or offering um, higher valued products or services. So when a company has both a high ROE, return on equity, and expanding margins, what it suggests is that a company is not only generating strong returns on equity, but also improving their profitability. So these factors now indicate that the company is efficiently utilizing its resources and has the potential for sustained growth and increasing shareholder value, which is what we're looking for. That's the holy grail, right? Increasing shareholder value. However, you got to look at a lot of other things when you, when you look at this 
it's not the only thing you look at, but these two things I like to marry together because it shows me not only the efficiency of management, but also the commitment of management to make sure that not only are they doing what they can to efficiently manage the business, but then utilizing the net returns, the profit after expenses, if you will, to benefit shareholders in a way that is ben it is um, profitable and, 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 and efficient. So ROE, high ROE, and expanding margins. Something to think about. With that in mind, there was a recent change. So, so the, the strategy picked up on something about a year ago in one particular sector, which I thought was fascinating. And, and what it picked up on was something that I wouldn't have outwardly said, oh yeah, that's a good idea. And now it changed dramatically. The sectors that are held within the core portfolio, I'm gonna, I want to tell you about. But before, just hold on, you'll get it. I'm going to tell you what it did. It was pretty cool. But before we do that, I want to talk about interactive brokers because interactive brokers' clients earn up to 4.58% on their uninvested, instantly available cash balances. In fact, you have to ask yourself, how much interest is your broker able to pay you? Many of them pay not much. You can compare IBKR's ability to pay you interest on your monies, again, up to 4.58% on your cash to your other brokers who pay probably less than half. That's just one of the many reasons clients use interactive brokers to trade stocks and options, futures, currencies, bonds, funds, and more. Now, when you're placing your money, this is important. Because when you place your money with a broker, you need to make sure that your broker is secure and can endure through good and bad times. I mean, that's obvious. But now, more than ever, something you really need to pay attention to. IBKR strong capital position, conservative balance sheet, and automated risk controls are designed to protect IBKR and its clients from large trading losses. Their prudent and conservative risk management uniquely positions them to pay you higher interest and with demonstrated security and financial strength. Of course, we know that REITs are subject to change. I want you to check it out. Interactive Brokers is also a member of SIPC. Go to ibkr.com slash interest rates to learn more. All right, so we left off on you know, a little bit of a cliffhanger there. Like, well, what, what are you talking about? What happened with the strategy? What happened when you're looking at doing the core equity positioning and, and where, so what happened? Well, I'll tell you what happened. About a year or so ago, there was a big change. That change was all of these energy shares, companies that very rarely like financials that made it through the screen and filtering process and, 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 and got into the core equity positioning within the portfolio. And I said, wait a second, just hold on a moment. That's weird. I don't think I've ever seen that before. And lo and behold, what had happened was the most profitable sector of the markets, as we know from a share performance, but from a, from a financial and fundamental standpoint, really started doing well. Now I tell you that because I want to fast forward it. I want to tell you where we are now. Right now, there was a big change. Energy dropped by about 15%, close to about 15%. While 
industrials picked up. Tech has dropped also by about 4%. No, 6%. Sorry, 6%. Consumer staples are up. Consumer discretionary up slightly. But we dropped on real estate, materials, infotech, telecom, financials, and energy. All of those came down, and we have less number, the fewer number of actual stocks in the portfolio. If you want to find out exactly how we do this, you have to check it out. Go over to the disciplineinvestor.com and, and find the strategy that says the discipline investor manager, management, the discipline investor managed growth strategy. And I get too excited sometimes. And uh, go look at the virtual tour. There's a virtual tour there. Check that out. That will give you a lot of other information about what's going on, some things that you need to know about. Of course, the disclaimers, disclosures. But it's important to understand that because right now, what's really fascinating is we essentially have 0% in large cap value equity positioning inside the portfolio. There's 14% of it in the blend is somewhere between value and growth. But that whole value quadrant from large, mid, and small amounts to 11%, whereas growth is 24, 36, 38%, and the rest is in blend. The big is the biggest positioning is mid-cap blend, the sweet spot. But I thought it was really interesting how it picked up on that, but it really started selling energy now, which is maybe a little bit, probably a little bit too late by a couple of months. Uh, and uh, started selling technology as well, which is really kind of interesting if you think about it. But nonetheless, that's the whole point. So we have a lower amount of overall equity exposure in the portfolio right now. And on top of that, we reduced down significantly the exposure of areas that had the huge run-up last year into the first part of this year. Pretty cool, I think, at least. Now, the next thing I want to talk about here and, and discuss with you is a question that has been coming in through the Ask Andrew, which you can go over again to thedisciplineinvestor.com and just click on the button and say, contact me. And up top, there's something about Ask Andrew. Just send it off to me. But there was a lot of questions that not exactly, they didn't say, you know, what happens during recession, but it was about, hey, what happens with an economic slowdown? Do I want to be in stocks? Do I want to be out? I'm really nervous about bonds, things of that nature. Uh, then there was other questions that came in about this, this idea about, you know, we have a recession ahead. How do I plan Again, same general discussion. Um, hey, if there's a recession, should I start buying in now? Wait till after. The same thing when it came, there was a lot of similar questions that came in about the debt ceiling. Should I wait? Should I buy now? All of it is dancing around the same exact topic about, well, what happens during these kinds of events? So I thought we'd pick up on some things that have happened in the past when it comes to recessions and maybe contrast some of the current day items that may be roadblocks to a similar outcome. But during recessions, essentially stocks, they, they experience declines in value. It's pretty simple. During a recession, when things slow down, when you see that there is a high level of unemployment, low level of production, people not spending, et cetera, what do you expect, Right. However, the specific performance of stock markets during recessions can vary depending on the severity and duration of the actual economic downturn, right? There's a lot of other factors that go in here too. So in some recessions, stock markets have experienced actually 
as you know, big declines. And then we refer to these as bear markets. For example, we have, what, 2008, the most recent one we could think about that was this global financial crisis. Let's forget, put, a, put aside for a minute the, uh, of course, what happened in, in 2020 for a second. But in 2008, we had a global financial crisis in stock markets around the world. We know it. what happened, right? There was a big, big crash, substantial losses, big just drawdowns overall. The S&P 500, which is one of the most followed stock indices in the world, declined by over 50% from its peak in 2007 to its low point in 2009. However, what's important to note is not all recessions lead to a significant move like that. As a matter of fact, there are some recessions that it's like, okay, thank you. That was fine. Okay, moving along. Nothing to see here. In a lot of cases, stock markets and wherever they are, and we use the, the term stock markets like, you know, the S&P 500, the DAX, uh, the CSI 300, the global MSCI Dow. They experience smaller and relatively protracted declines or even they may be very resilient. They go down, we see a V recovery. And, and that is impacted and the reason why that is happening is there's a lot of outside factors, such as, as we know, and we've seen time and time again recently, government interventions, central banks come in with stimulus. We see market sentiments say, oh my God, you know what? This is so bad, it's got to be good. A lot of things happen during those times that we see these kinds of things happen. The more experienced you are and the more of these that you've seen, two things happen. More you get jaded on the fact that anything could possibly happen wrong, but more, I think, in line and in tune with the reality of how this all operates, which is that there is no way that governments are going to allow the financial system to fail, not on their watch. So that's something to consider. There's actually been a few times, interestingly enough, that stock markets have been seen to go up during recessions, only a couple of few times. And they're usually situations when... Um, Stock markets are recovering, or, or they're seeing a rec they're recovering. They may just you know move down a little bit, but then they move up dramatically because they see that the economy itself is snapping back more quickly, and that maybe some areas of the markets will actually do really well. And those areas are overwhelmingly the favored ones, and no big caps, and kind of like what we're seeing now to a degree. I'll give you another example. Back in. Uh, 2001, it was a recession in the U.S., right? Which was triggered by, what? The, the bursting of the bubble, the dot-com bust. And, and even though we, we went into a recession, the stock market experienced a relatively mild decline. The S&P declined about, well, 12%. That may seem like a lot today, but back then it was like, all right, it moves around a bit. And that was primarily due to expectations of a huge economic recovery and the performance of specified sectors such as Healthcare and defense. That was what happened then. Now, what's also interesting to note is, listen what I just said. There was a recession in 2001 triggered by the bursting of the dot-com, the bubble that was created, right? So, the actual recession happened after the stock market 
move down. That's an important consideration. We could say that the stock market is a forward-looking mechanism. That's an interesting point to think about. We could say that by the time the recession happens, the stock market has already done its job. And in fact, because the recession is now happening and it's telegraphed out there so well, and we see it on paper, we see it in talk, well, then that's the time that we're going to see things like stimulus, monetary policy changes. Now, another example of when the, a, a pretty remarkable response, I think we all would agree, was in March of 2020, right? We're coming on the pandemic. The massive amount of global recession that happened, stock markets experienced a painful, painful, fast drop followed by an amazing recovery. And this was pretty unprecedented, I must tell you. The levels of government stimulus that came in, we know the central bank support, investor optimism that, you know, one day this is going to be over and we're going to reopen. This recovery happened like, wham, done. Big rebound, more than a V. It was like a kaboom. It was like a drop of a mortar down the chute and fireworks and then blast off. Now, now these are the these are, these are the exceptions to the rule. Most recession stock markets tend to experience declines in value. There's, there's no question, because in, in particularly the protracted ones, right? Not the ones that are just three months long, one quarter. That's it. When we have these protracted recessions, these slowdowns in the economy, people are losing their job. They're not depositing their four hundred one k plan, like we've talked about many times over the years. The mechanics of the market. The more people that are working, the more money is going into the 401k plan on a regular basis, week in and week out, month in and month out, year in and year out. That's not the case necessarily when you don't have a job. Because I'm going to tell you, tell me if I'm wrong. When you don't have a job, you're not putting money into your 401k plan. Right? That means that that money that was slated to go into stocks or some portion of stocks, just not happening. So when you experience a loss in your job and your outlook is poor because you don't know when you're going to have money, you start to say, you know, maybe I don't want to be invested so aggressively. And you curl up a little bit in a bowl from an investment standpoint. And you say, you know what? Leave me alone. I'm not getting involved in the markets right now. Now, certain stocks and sectors tend to be more, I would say, vulnerable in some of these periods. They can be disproportionately affected during recessions. And the impact of recessions on specified stocks depends on a lot of different factors, right? You have the nature of the recession, the length of recession, the industry the company operates in, the company's financial health, the business model. Are they, in fact, is it, is it a staffing company during a downturn? I mean, it's probably not going to do well, right? Or is it a company that provides technology to help companies defray costs. They may do well. You have like the cyclical industries, such as automotive, uh, leisure and travel, construction. They're very sensitive to economic downturns. No question about that. And they often experience a decline in demand as consumer spending decreases during recessions. Not something that we've seen in the housing market until very recently. And no wonder why that all this talk about a future recession coming, the housing stocks 
are doing amazingly well because we're not there. We're not seeing that part. And that's because of the dynamic of what's going on with regard to the fact that while interest rates are up, a lot of people are just not selling their homes and prices are staying high because nobody's getting out unless they have to. Where are they going? They go from a 3.5% mortgage to a 65 Nope, not happening. There's also a preponderance of people that are still looking. We have a lot of people that have moved out of the basements of the parents and they got jobs and they're doing well and they're looking to finally buy because renting is really expensive. The crossover point is not even reasonably close anymore, even with interest rates being higher. So what we have is things like the travel industry in, in a recession could be a problem. Consumer discretionary could be a problem. Certain industries, like I mentioned, could be a problem. So what you see is companies within these sectors may face reduced revenue and profitability, which leads to a negative impact on their stock price. That all makes sense, and you know that. I know that. Things like financial institutions, banks, insurance companies, can also have a significant problem during recessions. Right? They may face... All sorts of challenges, such as higher loan defaults if you're a bank, uh, much of the, of the ownership of homes and the debt that they put out there is distressed, the loans, right, for financial products, lower investment returns overall due to the fact that people are not paying their mortgages. So that could weigh on the stock performance also. And we, we also have companies with high debt levels, or probably better said, Weak balance sheets. That's probably a better way to look at it. Weak balance sheets may be more, I guess, vulnerable to economic downturns. They may they struggle with servicing that debt, especially in an environment like we have now. You have companies that just gobbled up as much debt as they can, spit it out to the investors out there, and then all of a sudden what they're seeing right now is, wait a minute, I need to refinance that debt, and I was at 4%, now I'm at 8 How's that going to work on margin compression? Not so good. So that's a big problem when serving their debt obligations and maybe even their future to access the capital markets, which could lead to a decline in their stock price. But on the other hand, we have things, for example, that may do well, like you have the defensive sectors, such as consumer staples, healthcare. People are going to get sick no matter whether there's a recession or not. In fact, I'm going to throw this out there. Maybe they're going to get sicker, depressed. Their health conditions worsen during times of financial hardship. Utilities, you got to pay the rent. You got to pay the heating bill, the lighting bill. These tend to be less affected during recessions. Now, during COVID, it was kind of upside down and backwards. I'm talking about, quote unquote, normal recessions, right? You know, oh, the average... Regular, old, normal, old recession that we have in life. But these kinds of areas like defensive stocks, consumer staples and healthcare, they have goods and services that are in demand regardless of economic conditions. So that, that makes their earnings more stable. So as a result, stocks in defensive sectors may experience relatively small declines during recessions. But generally speaking, you know, if we have a hardcore recession, Things go down. Back in 2020, you remember, everything went down. Everything popped back up, but everything went down. And then in 2022, much different scenario. We didn't get into a recession, but interest rates went up. There was a recession potential. 
Maybe we did go into recession, but they didn't call it a recession because we had the old standby, well-known, often used two consecutive quarters of negative GDP. And that is what used to define a recession, but seemingly doesn't anymore. But we did have that. And so maybe that was a recession. Maybe it wasn't. I don't know. But what happened was that pretty much nothing was good. As good as everything was in 2020, 2022 was exactly the mirror opposite. Aside from energy. Energy was good in 2022. So it's important to note that stock performance during recessions can also be influenced by market sentiment. Expectations of investors about what's going to happen out in the future. Maybe it's quick and, and, and painless to a degree. Quick and movement down and then all of a sudden it pops up because like we saw recently, right? 2020 came down. Then all of a sudden 2023 is like, hello, let's buy stocks again. A lot of that has to do with government policies that are moving and swaying all over the place in terms of what the Fed is going to do. Because everybody's favorite thing to talk about and pastime these days in the market is all about the Fed. We know that. We've seen that. So I hope that answers that question about markets during recessions. And I'm talking specifically about equities now, right? Bonds, totally different animal. But in a time when we have liquidity constraints that are about to hit us right now and the fact that you can get basically risk-free four to five or even higher, but let's just go to four to five percent risk-free returns in cash. Tara, as we talked about last week with Tom Nelson, there are reasonable alternatives versus Tina which is, uh, there is no alternative but stocks. Now there are alternatives to stocks. And as we see interest rates peaking up and margins starting to compress and earnings slow down happening, we saw story after story over last weekend about the reduction in earnings overall. And we did see already in this year, in this cycle, on a year-over-year -year basis, you know, close to an 8 to 10% reduction in overall S&P earnings. Meanwhile, we're off to the races. You take a multiple on that 8% reduction, we shouldn't be exactly where we are. That doesn't matter because everybody's thinking, you know what? The Fed's done. Inflation is going to be squashed. They're going to go back to an easy monetary policy. Wrong. I don't think so. Doesn't seem to me to be where we're going right now. But we'll see. Anyway, that's going to wrap it up for this week. Uh, we're starting the summer off. And uh, I want to keep it light, educational right now. Go over to disciplineinvestor.com. Check out what all there is to see. And of course, if you want to find out more about the things that we do, I told you there is a virtual tour. Short, sweet, watch it. Over on the Discipline Investor, click on the strategies, the Discipline Investor Managed Growth Strategy Virtual Tour. It'll take you right to where you want to go. Thanks for joining me this week and every week on the Discipline Investor and DH Unplugged. I'll see you again soon. Nothing discussed in this podcast should be considered a recommendation to buy or sell any security. Past performance is no indication of future results. In addition, the information presented is not intended to be used as a sole basis of any investment decisions, nor should be construed as advice designed to meet the individual needs of any particular investor. Nothing herein constitutes legal, accounting, or tax advice, or individually tailored investment advice. Remember, investing involves substantial risk. 
Past performance is not a guarantee of future results, and a loss of original capital may occur. No one receiving or accessing this information should make any investment decision without first consulting his or her own personal financial advisor and conducting his or her own research and due diligence, including carefully reviewing any applicable prospectuses, press releases, reports, and other public filings of the issuer of any securities being considered. Please consider this for educational purposes only. As always, use your best judgment when investing. Horowitz & Company, Inc. is registered as an investment advisor with the state of Florida and conducts business in other states where it is properly registered or is excluded from registration requirements. Registration does not imply any level of skill or training. Advertisements are not related to the host or affiliates and are not considered recommendations by the host of the show or any affiliates of Horowitz & Company.